Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Bell the Bell with Bobby Blaze. I am your host, Professor Jeremy Vilmer, and joining us now is a man who still occasionally dials 8675309 just to see what Jenny's up to, Bobby Blaze. Woo, mercy mama. Let's do it, daddy. <laughs> I come rolling into Mempho, TWA. Tell all the ladies, handsome Jimmy's on the way. You know, I'm a rocker and a roller, a little funky too. I was raised by a gypsy. You know, handsome's cool. I was born in New York City, San Francisco town. Tell all the women, handsome Jimmy's on the prowl. Whoa, whoa, have mercy. Have mercy, daddy. Let's do it. <laughs> What's going on, professor? We're going somewhere today special to me. Oh, Mofo. Yeah. Memphis, Tennessee. Well, uh, actually, it was watching Memphis is where you uh, where you fell in love with wrestling, right? Yes, sure it was, man. Watching the old wrestling. Yeah. Watching the old Memphis. Memphis. Because, I mean, that's like what, uh, paragraph number two in uh, Pinky <laughs> Pammy, you know? Yeah. yeah. My brother come running out telling me something was on TV. I had to see it, man. And, uh, you know, the tail end of the uh, Memphis tape was going off. And he was trying to explain to me what it was. Uh, and I was pro wrestling. I know that much, you know. And just we had to wait the following week, and we caught it. And that was what he was trying to tell me. I guess it was uh, Lawler and Dundee in a fight. Um, and Law and, and Superstar Dundee had done his um, uh, Sunset Flip, man. So that the next week we got to watch it. Again, I'm just using those two names. We're going to go over all kinds of names this week, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, from, from the Memphis and Tennessee ter territory. But um, when, and of course, when Superstar wrestled in that next program that next week, my brother said, there it is, there it is right there. And then we, what was what was We had Lance and the Lance for us, or Dave Brown said, and, you know, your winner is Superstar Bill Dundee with the, you know, uh, Sunset Flip. <laughs> he had tried to tell me all week. He said a guy, like, jumped over his head, man, landed on his own head and flipped over him. And, like, I don't know what it is. But then, so I was hooked again because I had, I had about, um, let's see, 69, 70, 20, about three or four a year hiatus there. Didn't watch it, you know, because the last I'd seen was the WWWF up in Baltimore and um, didn't even know it was on in this area. And we got Memphis, man. And uh, washed it all the way through. <laughs> washed it all the way through. Good stuff, too. Got a, got a lot of good stuff. Um, yeah. Well, so I guess it's no secret we're going to be talking about Memphis this week. That's right. Yeah. And all Tennessee. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, it's not just Memphis, but, you know, uh, particularly Memphis. But, yeah, Tennessee, Tennessee in general. Uh, before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and hit yeah. a couple things real quick. I know we got some business to take care of. Yep. Talk to you out here. Uh, do you want to you got any shout outs? Because I got a few I want to hit. Uh, uh, let's see. I do have one down there. Uh, um from the corrections, you want me to go ahead and give that one out or um, not? That was the only one I was going to give out. Will we save that? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could do that now, or we could save it and do it as its own thing. I mean, that's okay. up to you. Uh, uh, go ahead and do your shout outs. All right, yeah. So I, you know, I'm not doing any in particular person, but yeah. um, I did want to give a shout out to a handful of cities that are in our top, you know, top listener groups. So Ashland, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky. Thank you very much for tuning in. San Jose, California, Chula Vista, and Manteca, California. Awesome. Manteca is not far from me. The other ones are a little bit further away. 
Okay. Uh, North Bergen, New Jersey, Columbus, Joey Ohio. Joey Diaz town right there, baby. <laughs> North Bergen, Joey Diaz. Shout out to Joey. Yeah. <laughs> Columbus, Ohio, uh, Fort yep. Worth, Houston. So thank you guys down there in Texas. Uh, over in the UK, they don't tell us what cities, but the country of England carries 93% of our listens in the UK. Um, right. And then up in Canada, Ontario. And uh, you know you know what showed up in the mail this week, Bobby? What's that? That would be my championship wrestling from Ontario t-shirt. All right, man. Yeah. So. Well, I've been waiting. You have to get you a picture and put it up on air, and I'll do the same. We'll put one up on Twitter or something, put them yeah. over, send out the t-shirts. So big shout-out to our boys up in Ontario, uh, Alberta, and, uh, you know, Manitoba up there. <laughs> Manitoba. Oh, Manitoba. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I love making fun of that accent. And the thing is, not everybody from there has that same accent because it's that kind of almost um, Minnesota accent, you know. It's, that's really what it is. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, and then, don't piss off our Canadian listeners. No, no, have- no. It, that'd be like that time I shit all over Bret Hart, huh? Yes, yeah, exactly. Fuck. They ate a big old bag of dicks over that for a long period of time. Um, all right. Well, then we've got some serious business. Uh, and this is, um, for this area of California, this would be a major loss. Um, Pat Patterson passed away this week at the age of 79. Yeah. Um, you know, Pat Patterson's career, I mean, obviously in uh, California, big deal. But, you know, he worked all over the country. Um, he was originally from Quebec, speaking of Canadians. Right. Uh, wrestled originally as Killer Pat Patterson. Uh, he came to America a few years later, even though he didn't speak any English at that point yet. Uh, worked for Tony Santos uh, in a company called Big Time Wrestling. Big Time Wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, he was recruited by Mad Dog Vachon uh, for Don Owens, Portland, Oregon-based Pacific Northwest Wrestling. Um, I believe it was over there that he wrestled as a pretty boy, Pat Patterson, with a beret, cigarette holder, and lipstick. I'm going to venture a guess that it was probably common knowledge he was gay at that point. I'm just guessing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, uh, And then as part of a talent exchange, he worked over in Texas, Oklahoma, and Arizona. Then is where, like, he was one of my dad's favorite wrestlers because he worked in uh, the San Francisco territory. Care to guess what that was called? Big time wrestling. That's right. And uh, worked for uh, Roy Shire, and he formed a tag team called the Blonde Bombers with Ray Stevens. Yes. That tag team is still often referenced as the greatest working tag team of all time. Yeah, I hear that. If you listen to any podcast with any type of history, knowledge of of the history of the professional wrestling business, man, they refer to uh, Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens all the time as the greatest tag team, one of the greatest tag team, if not the, of all time, man. Um, and that San Francisco territory, they must just really set that on fire. I mean, yeah. they, you know, them guys were just over, and um, uh, they knew how to work out there, man. They knew how to work. Um, and in fact, I'm just going to tell you, I listened to one other the other podcast that said that uh, they come from the ring one night, and Roy Shire started chewing him out and yelling. I said, don't ever do that again. Don't ever do that again. And they, they was like, what? <laughs> they thought they had a great match, but they didn't. He, he goes, yeah, you had a great match. 
no one else here. I can't compete with that. And I got to run this place for several more years. <laughs> you know, you guys be long gone by then. Oh, so he got shit. on about having too good of a match. You know, yeah. I guess he gave the people too much that night, but um, I just heard that on a recent podcast. I thought that's pretty cool. So uh, anyway, oh, yeah. go on down through there, uh, jumping ahead to, uh, went down to Florida, I think. Uh, let's see here. Championship wrestling in Florida in 77. And then, uh, from 78 to 83, I believe he was with uh, the AWA, initially with Ray Stevens as the Blonde Bomber still, I believe. Okay. Uh, he did some time in New Japan and then Lutt International up in uh, Quebec. And then, um, of course, he is the, you know went to the WWF, where right. he was the first Intercontinental Champion. Uh, he was the North American Champion, and then in a completely real and not, not made up tournament or match down in Rio de Janeiro... He unified the North American Championship with the South American Championship to become the first Intercontinental Champion in a yeah. completely real and non-kayfabe match, I might add. I just want to point that out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was a creator of the Royal Rumble. Uh, he is often credited as the first openly gay, you know, well-known openly gay professional wrestler. Now, I do question that one because I know for a fact my dad never knew that Pat Patterson was gay, so I don't know yeah. how open that was, but... Uh, my, I don't know either. I know maybe amongst a few of the boys, yeah. you know, at that time. But I'm thinking that's, um, I think that's kept pretty kayfabe, I would imagine. You know, um, even I, after he got to the WWF, maybe it became more open there just from some things that took place there. But uh, once again, um, I had a guy stop me at the store the morning he passed away that said, you know, did I see here that Pat Patterson passed away? And I said, yes, and an older gentleman. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I said, yes, I did. I said, in fact, I said, I read it off the WWE site because I thought they'd done such a really nice write-up of him. I said, it didn't look like they kept too much out of it. And he said something about, I, I saw it on CNN, and, and um, you know what? They, they said he was gay. They didn't have to do that. And I, he goes, because it doesn't really matter, does it? And I go, no. I go, it's just the fact that, you know, everyone pretty much knew he was. Um, I think it is important that, you know, things yeah. are more accepted. Now, you know, we're standing across the aisle from each other just talking. I yeah. said, nowadays, you know, yeah, it doesn't really matter that much. But back in his time, that was stuff that was kept in the closet, you know. Yep. And this guy had done some wrestling announcing around town, so I was just, he's not some just goof or a mark. I'm just, I, he was just confused and saying, why did he have to bring out on mainstream television when the news? And I was saying, I think it's common knowledge now, maybe not back then, you know. Yeah. Oh, well, let so, me tell you the reason I think it is important. No, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a thing. But right, the reason not it, it matters. Yeah, yeah. The reason it could be important is there could be a gay kid out there who wants to be a pro wrestler but doesn't feel like he'd fit in or so. Now I know that's not the case so much now, but I, I'm sure that it happened in the past where somebody felt like you know they wanted to do that job but nobody would accept them or whatever. Yeah, blah blah blah. Yeah, sure. That's that's why it's important. That's why representation is important. That's the the only reason I bring it up because it really doesn't change his wrestling at all. Right. You know, right. it's you know, except that one character he played, uh, it had nothing to do with his career. Yeah. Um, and then of course, you know, I believe I got notes from uh, Bret Hart is one of the people who has said that he was in the greatest one of the greatest tag teams of all time. 
Okay. So, yeah, that's Pat Patterson. And again, you know, they were fucking huge. Him and Ray Stevens were huge here when yeah. I was a kid. My dad played craps with Ray Stevens once and never stopped telling that story. My dad had met, <laughs> my dad had met the Lone Ranger and I heard more about the Ray Stevens craps game than anything else. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Uh, and I know, uh, uh, even though you brought up the Royal Rumble there, there were several other ideas. He was such a creative mind. Oh, too. yeah. Um, you know, I just listened to other podcasts and the things I've read throughout the weeks and these tributes. Um, you know, he, he stuck around for creative for, for just to be around the boys and be around the business a lot. Uh, but, um, you know, talking through a match, letting them know, you know, which way it's going to go, uh, even though he might know the outcome or the winner of that match, um, you know, he would give them some direction. And when they agreed on that, that just, it added something more spectacular to the match, just his little bit of input, his little bit of imagination and creativity to it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so that, that's pretty cool, man. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. But so may had... Pat Patterson rest in peace, you know. Oh, yeah, great. So. When he had a, uh, he was almost 80, so that's a, yeah. good, that's a good run. Um, you know, he had a really long, prolific career. I mean, you know, obviously when his yeah. body couldn't do the wrestling anymore, he stuck around and creative forever. Um, yeah. and you know, he's just one of those guys that, you know, when he was behind the scenes, you know, you know, the problem I think I have is that a lot of people are going to remember him as the goon squad and that's not what his career should be, you know? Right. No, yeah. no. Well, I think some younger people may, you know, that tuned in at that particular time, that's what they may, you know, remember him as. But that's far from who he was. Yeah. You know, long uh, ways. the um, the uh, one thing um, his partner, Louis, um, I'll just kind of bring it up. I guess they were together since the uh, early 60s. And so I have to uh, I think as Admiral, but there too, to uh, to be with the same person. Oh, yeah. Most marriages, you know, uh, don't, don't last a lifetime like that, you know. Yeah. And these these guys, you know, so apparently spent the spent the entire lifetime as adults together. Um, I, I admire and respect that man. So. Um, uh, no, that's to, uh, to they, that they, they, they were together for forty years. Yeah. Which, See, that's, yeah. That's incredible. That's a long, Hello. long time to spend with somebody else. You know, as soon I as this COVID. This over. I'm gonna try to spend about 40 minutes with someone. You yeah. Know? Oh Jesus Christ! Yeah. <laughs> right so, now, but 40 years with the same partner, man, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, it's um, you know, I, I can say these things now. Uh, you know, marriage isn't a word; it's a sentence. <laughs> Damn. Um, yeah. <laughs> you out here uh, shooting, man. Yeah. Well, you know. You know. Um, I, I look. I pat myself all the back on the back all the time for getting 20 years. That's a long fucking time, you know. Yeah. It is, man. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's, look, I mean, that's a hell, he had a great long career. He was with uh, the same partner forever. I mean, pretty much, I would say, probably had a pretty fulfilling life, you know? Yeah, I would, I think so. Yeah. I think so, man. All right. Oh, let's move on here. I think this is where I was going to drop back in with, um, we had, you call them correction of notes, and I think of them just more as notes, you know, mm -hmm. um, from a couple episodes back. Um, uh, Gentleman got a hold of us there, Kevin Barnett at Beard Dog 2020. Thank you. Um, during our show, the AWA show uh, on Thanksgiving night, uh, we announced there was a Richard Blood there, and also uh, Ricky uh, Steamboat wrestled on the show, so we was a little bit confused on that. Found out that Richard Blood was Tito Santana. So that was a bit of information that was uh, smartened us up a little bit, so appreciate that. 
the super destroyer Mark II. We wasn't sure who that was that particular show, and that was Sergeant Slaughter. And as soon as I read that, I was like, dang it, I think I knew that. I mean, just it just hit me like for some reason, being the Mark I am, I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I remember Slaughter being under a mask as a Super Destroyer, Super Destroyer Mark II or whatever. Then um, he put Heenan was on um, uh, suspension at that time. So uh, thank you, ah. Kevin. Uh, he said, yeah, Heenan was suspended at that time. And um, I think he even wrote me and said that uh, Heenan went to – uh, Georgia and like, uh, cause we thought he might've been in Georgia at that time. And I think this gentleman, uh, even gave me the date, um, that, um, he didn't, he didn't down to Georgia until I think he seven, let's see what 78 is when he didn't, Bobby got to Georgia in late 78. Um, so yeah, this, and we, 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 we were doing Thanksgiving of 78. So he, if he was suspended, he could have been on his way to Georgia at that time. Yep. Just, you know, just putting that out there. Yep, so. that could very well be. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was really, I was baffled by the Richard Wood thing. And then I don't know if it was the same guy. Somebody got a hold of me on Facebook with pretty much everything he said there. So I have to assume yeah. I, I needed to go look up the name and I didn't. So you know, whatever. But yeah, uh, if not, I'll give um, you a shout out next week. But okay, so they told yeah. Ricky Steamboat, "Hey, you can't wrestle under the name Richard Blood." Then they tell Tito Santana, hey, uh, you're going to wrestle as Richard Blood? What the fuck is yeah. that? that like whack-a-mole? What the fuck, you know? I don't know, but I'm also wondering when Tito um, went down to Texas to work. Um, when we done Texas back then, I'm just wondering if we missed something, if he if he worked any as Richard Blood down there or not. Uh, because we knew he, he used his uh, real name, then he used Tito Santana a little bit when we talked about Texas a few weeks back. But I don't recall him using Richard Blood there. So it makes me go along with what your questioning is. Uh, when he gets to the AWA, you got Ricky Steamboat. Hey, you can't use <laughs> Ricky Steamboat or Richard Blood. You got to use your, you know, your gimmick name because we got a guy Richard Blood or how that works. Yeah, you know? that's so yeah, whatever. That's yeah, that's just odd. That's really strange. Yeah. Um, and then real quick, before we jump into the show, I wanted to share a little yeah. story with you real quick, Bobby. So, uh, Thanksgiving night, I apparently tied one on, um, cause I woke up two days later and a six month supply of, uh, the Rogaine showed up at my apartment. And, um, so, you know, look, I've been bald for 25 years. I don't mind being bald. I just hate having the same haircut for 25 years. Hard to be fashionable, but I don't know that this shit works. Right. So I've been taking it to work. And secretly putting it on my coworker's head. So <laughs> now, if he sprouts hair in six months, then I'm gonna try it out. But um, you know, I realized that because of this, like I wanted, I wanted like be a practical joker at the next level. So what I'm really waiting for is like them to develop like an at home gene splicing kit. Because then what I'm gonna do is go around like say like you fall asleep at the party first. I'm gonna splice your genes and I'm gonna put taste buds in your asshole, and uh, your whole fucking life is gonna be ruined. That's the kind of Jeez. practical joke I wanna pull. <laughs> Oh, that's hardcore, man. Yeah. Especially around Christmas time. Yeah, Jeez. well, you know, you know. <laughs> well, you need to get um, get someone take your little cell phone there at at the office and just kind of you know nonchalantly take a picture of his head every couple of days and just yep. enlarge it and see if you can see anything sprouting, man. That's that's kind of the plan here. Yeah. I figure you there know you this go. is this is like a control group in a in a laboratory, <laughs> so I can kind of see you know what's going to happen. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, anything else you want to add before we move on to the show? No, I think that pretty much shoots my wand right there, doesn't it? Okay, yeah. I yeah. think so. Uh, I'm just going to put this out there as, uh, kind of as a disclaimer. Um, I think this is going to be a great show. I do. I really do. A lot of history here. We just want you to realize that, you know, we're talking about Tennessee territory uh, that promoted matches for over a 75-year period pretty much. Uh, we're going to try to keep the stories, you know, great and keep them alive and, and let, the, you know, the people as past that keep them um, as a part of history as we like to do on this podcast. Uh, we do that through and through, you know. Um, so we're going to be talking again uh, mostly about Memphis. But we're going to talk about the whole Tennessee uh, territory. We're going to bring up several, several names. We're going to miss a few. Uh, we're going to, hell, we're going to miss a lot probably because it's going to be hard to do in just a one-hour podcast. But we're going to give you a brief history like we always do and also want to talk about some of the towns and cities that, that the uh, Tennessee uh, – throughout the uh, Tennessee area went to because there's even other states involved. Um, we're just going to try to do our best with that and um, hope you enjoy the show, man. Why don't you start us off here, Professor, with the uh, with the Nick Goulas and Roy Welch and the NWA Mid-America. Well, um, <laughs> and that, that kind of covers it. So back in the 1940s, uh, NWA Mid-America is what it would eventually become, but Nick Goulas and Roy Welch founded the Tennessee Territory. I guess it was Tennessee, Kentucky, and Alabama was the area that it covered. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, you know, they had quite a, quite a bit of space there. Now, as a quick aside, I'm starting to develop the rules for a drinking game for Bell to Bell with Bobby Blaze. And so far, two of the ones I've come up with is every time we mention a Welch, you have to take a shot. And every time we find a company called Big Time Wrestling, you have to take a shot. So, oh, that could be fun. Yeah, that, be that, fun. that could be. Um, you know, so that area ran, oh, let's see here. Uh, yeah. Tennessee, Kentucky. Our good friend, mm-hmm. um, God, I was just say, our, our good friend um, Ron Fuller Welch, it, it's his grandfather up here, Roy Welch. And uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about his father, Buddy Welch, too, in here. So there's your three quick shots if you're playing along with that game. <laughs> um, I'm going to hear in a little bit uh, once we go through this. I'm going to go over a map. I have a map that's going to talk a little bit about um, what what Jeremy's talking about, what towns and cities and how that's how they spread out and divide it out and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, so go ahead. That, um, well, from 53 to 74, John Kazana promoted the Knoxville area. Joe Gunther promoted the Birmingham area from uh, 1940 till sometime in the 70s. We're not really sure. Uh, 1977, uh, Jerry Jarrett and uh, Jerry Lawler broke away from NWA America, uh, breaking the Memphis area out to start it on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the, which they named the Continental Wrestling Association. Now, I didn't know for years. That it was called the Continental Wrestling Association. I'd only ever heard it called Memphis Wrestling until a few, yeah. you know, a few years back, it seems like. Uh, Mid-America, which was the original promotion, stopped promoting sometime in 1981. The CWA took over most of their territory and their championships at that point. So that kind of gives us the quick background on the area there. Yeah. Bobby, any, any uh, point in, important high spots that I missed there? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um like I said, just uh, mention those names at this point in the broadcast. Uh, Nick Goulas and Roy Welch's name, you know, um, that that's pretty much where we're at. Um, up until you wanted to go number 10 here, we're going to bring up Nick Goulas and go into a little bit of detail about him. And then we'll jump into some uh, Jerry Jarrett stuff. Um, and then we'll jump into dividing these out into 
uh, who ran what. How's that? Yeah, that sounds so, good. So, you know, again, so people know, and I'll probably not reference this again going forward, but we, we originally, when we kind of hit our flow on this show, we were doing like a top 10 show pretty much every week. Yeah. And while we've kept the format and the structure, we don't really do a top 10 anymore. We just kind of do 10 talking points that I, I keep the notes that way because I have fun naming the talking points. Uh, not so much this number 10, which is, uh, Nick Goulas, nepotism at its worst slash the fracturing of a territory. So Bobby, what was going on with Nick Goulas that pissed yeah, everybody so off? He, um, okay. We've talked about Devon Eriks and Devon Eriks having a lot of talent and getting pushed and rightfully so, mm-hmm. um, as promoter sons. I want to bring this up. I brought that up for a reason and I'll get back to the Goulas. Uh, my brother and I talked about this too with, um, um, shit, drawn a blank, Bobby, uh, spit it out. Greg Ganya. So I want to say this, uh, you know, burn, uh, pushed Greg, but also I want, I don't think Greg, um, my brother and I has kind of gotten a little bit of discussion about this. I don't want to discredit, uh, uh Greg Ganya in his career because, um, you know, he was about six three and, and was two twenty and was built pretty good and wrestled pretty good. I just don't know that he was into it. He obviously wasn't a level of his father was plus all the talented guys he had to wrestle with, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think his talent, I think his talents, he liked going to the shows and being part of the matches and stuff, but I think he also realized he wasn't as talented as some of the other talented with him. Um, but he realized he had a part on the show and could handle his part on the show. Um, I think he understood that. We talked about that, that match that took place on Thanksgiving 78. With that said, uh, like you said, the free birds got their just due. Uh, Greg probably took his career as far as he could with it, but, um, Nick had a son named George and George was regularly booked over established, talented, uh, more talented guys. Um, it's no secret. Um, he didn't pay his dues. Um, and he just, uh, he was getting pushed in main events and, uh, he, I don't want to discredit his wrestling ability, but it looked like he had limited wrestling ability with a limited amount of physical skill too, with the body type he presented. If you ever see a picture of him, um, but, uh, that, that caused the uh, problem because people started getting hot about it. The fans could see it too, but, uh, Jared had invested a large sum of money into what he thought would be about 10% of the uh, promotion that, but he later learned that Gould's had tricked him to paying, and I heard this before, of buying an option to pay less, by which time it already, the option had already expired. And so that's when um, Jarrett decided to go on his own. But there was just a lot of heat there, I guess, from um, uh, George, or Nick Gould is pushing his son, George, and, and uh, putting him in main events and, and going over on people he shouldn't have been going over on, if you will. So that's just uh, nepotism, poor booking, whatever you want to call it. Uh, playing favorites or what have you. So that's, does that sum it up pretty much? What's it? Um, yeah. I know you put him with Bobby Eaton. I, you know, I've heard Bobby Eaton talk about him and Bobby has nothing to say bad about anyone, you know, but he just, you know, pretty much said he just, just didn't get it. You know, he just, just didn't really get it. Oh yeah. Uh, well, look, like there's, said, there's, was, yeah. I mean, look, you can tell. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not a wrestler, so I try not to be overly critical, but you know, I'm like, I'm a long time watcher of wrestling product. And you can tell when you're watching a match where a guy who is not believable as the winner in that particular match gets the win. Yeah. And if you're regularly doing that, look, fans can smell bullshit, man. You know, it's, (laughs) you know, it's, you know, they can see it, they can smell it, they know when it's going on. And when they're being fed it, um, you know, not only are you going to piss the fans off, but 
if you've got talent that you're holding down, you're going to piss them off. Um, you know, it's, it's just like, you know, lots of people fell into this. You know, Ganya did yeah. it. Watts did it. Uh, Goulas did it. But in this case, between pushing his pushing his son in a non-believable fashion and then basically just fucking Jerry Jarrett. Yeah. It cost him a big chunk of his market. And uh, so, yeah, that's when Jarrett, you know, or that was probably the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And that's right, when right. Jer- that's when the Jerry's. Decided they were going to pick up and go. Yep. Well, with that being said, um, there's money in those tables. How That's about right. that? <laughs> I like this talking point here. The um, <clears throat> Back in the day, Memphis was known for the gimmick tables. Uh, just going to uh, give some credit to where credit due. This uh, history lesson is uh, uh, part of his book, uh, Jim Cornette's book, that it's called... Um, uh, rags, paper, and pens, the merchandising of Memphis wrestling. So Jarrett uh, becomes a wrestler, but I'll get to that in just a second. So Memphis wrestling was known for the gimmick tables. And I remember when I was in Smoky Mountain and Ricky and Robert and the boys smartened me up to the gimmick wars. But um, anyway, back in the uh, Goulas Welsh promotion, they had a program called Slamagram. And a guy by the name of Jerry Jarrett sold them for five cents for the promotion. So you can see how long ago... Jerry Jarrett was involved in professional wrestling. So Jarrett became a professional wrestler himself. And his mom, Christine, and Jeremy, I know you got a few things to say about her. I guess she was known as Teeny to her friends because um, she had a huge part to do with the Memphis Territory. But at this point, she just suggested to uh, Jerry that he should take some pictures and sell for himself for some extra income. At this point, no one had done that. They just had the programs. So he took a picture with his horse, uh, Third Q. And uh, he said he sold over a thousand of those pictures through through time, you know. But uh, others followed suit, and they realized now that they were in the picture marketing business, and that's kind of where they started um, the gimmick tables down in, in Memphis territory. The guys were making hundreds of dollars extra per month, and the office didn't take anything for the gimmick sales. So the guys went there, sometimes working for less money on a nightly basis or a weekly deal because they could make it up on the gimmick tables. Now it said in the 80s. The fabulous one, Stan Lane and Steve Kern, was said to be making in the thousands extra per month. And uh, for everything I've heard, I can believe that. So uh, mo- most, of, most of the gimmick tables was uh, uh, all this stuff was in a forward by Jerry Jarrett, the words himself saying, hey, uh, there's money in them gimmick tables, you know. And like I said, uh, uh, we got a – there's a link there. I don't know, Jeremy. Uh, we have to put another link there. You can get on Amazon um, – Cornette's book, again, it's uh, uh, going to reference uh, several other things, too. We're going to talk about um, Sputnik Monroe, and he's the one that said, um, well, they're going out there to to push their rags, papers, and pens, and that's where Cornette took the title from that out uh, for that. But that was the opening forward there about how the gimmick war started in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, the guy selling pictures for extra extra money um, uh, on top of what they was making at the shows. Uh, real briefly, I'm just going to put this out there, uh, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Um, people asked me that I get to work Memphis, and um, I, I, I have I did not go out to work for the Memphis territory. I had two different times I could have. Um, maybe I should have, maybe I shouldn't have. The first time I was in Florida, I was wrestling down there. I was living with my brother and uh, lifting every day and getting to go train at the Malenko's every couple of days and and uh, 
the gym I worked out in, uh, another name you're going to hear, uh, Robert Foyle. <laughs> Robert Foyle was down there. He was a colonel then. That's four uh, shots. For, there you go, working for WCW. Well, he worked out the same gym as my brother and myself. There was the Bushwhackers, a lot of different guys down there. And then over at the Sportatorium, I was working over there every Tuesday night, and uh, I got to know Pat Tanaka a little bit. And uh, anyway, between Robert asking me and Pat asking me, you know, would you, would you want to go to Memphis? Because basically they were saying guys were starving up there. And I really wasn't ready, probably. I could have went at that time, um, but lack of confidence, I probably just, you know, I was more comfortable staying there to school and working for Florida and work with the guys I knew to work I had another deal up in, in Canada, and also I knew I had to do one more tour up there, and also I knew um, I was in talking with Cornette at that point. So I didn't really push it, but uh, but Robert, you know, had mentioned it to me as the knock I had. Um, and again, I don't think I was ready then. I think I made the best decision. Now, another time back when Smoky Mountain, I was already in Smoky Mountain wrestling, and this is the time I may or should have. Um, I talked to uh, uh, talked to Robert Gibson and I talked to Tracy Smothers about this. And Tracy had a place out there in Nashville, and I was even thinking about renting a place off of him because it got pretty serious. Um, Cornette was going to give me about three or four months off, and I was talking to Randy Hales. And Randy had said, you know, Bobby, if you want to come over, we'll work into the program. This is back when they was doing the Smoky Mountain uh, uh, USWA war back and forth, east versus west. So they was doing business with each other. Um, but once again, uh, the payoff over there uh, in Memphis, I'd seen a couple of the guys, you know, had told me about some of the payoffs they was getting that you really have to live on a gimmick money, you know. And um, some of the loops, you know, if you're not staying in Nashville, um, and I was just, you know, I had just gotten married within a year or so of that time, and I really didn't want to be, you know, staying too far eight hours from home, let alone four hours where I was already on the road, you know, not making excuses, just saying that Randy Hale and I was both talked about it, and I just said, you know, maybe right now it's not my best interest, Randy. He said, you'll kill it, and he his his assurance to me was, you'll kill it in gimmicks, Bobby. You'll, you'll make it out there, believe me. And I'm, I was just more insecure about, nah, I'd, I'd like to have some that guaranteed money. And he told me, like, one night was a 40-night town. He, he told me some layouts, you know. Now, this town, you know, Mondays you'll make probably $100 in Memphis. Uh, you know, Tuesday you might make 40 and a little. You know, just give me a little bit of load down what my salary could be. He, But he was emphasizing. So it was business only, and uh, I decided not to. Again, I'd love to say I worked out there in the Memphis territory. But in a few minutes, I'll tell you about all the guys, the great guys I got to meet. Through that come through Memphis territory that I got to either meet or wrestle with in the ring. So I just kind of want to put that out there. Um, I've had people in other interviews ask me, how, so I just put out there on my old podcast right now. I did not work Memphis. I'd love to, but the two times that was available to me wasn't the right time in my personal life or professional life to do so. So yes. I'm going to spit it back to you and tell you, <laughs> go to Memphis Heat, Jeremy. All right. Watch that movie. <clears throat> yeah. Number eight movie. is Memphis Heat, and we're going to talk about the style of Memphis wrestling, or, you know, I, I guess, you know, what they call Memphis wrestling, they kind of apply to the entire South, but it's either called Southern style or Memphis style, but believability, uh, good guys versus bad guys, riling up the crowd, fire, action, street fights. And for me, one of the things that I've noticed going back and watching more and more of it is they protected their moves. They yeah. really protected their moves there. You know, if it, it, that pile driver wasn't fired every match, it was saved for big matches, you know, cage matches, right. shit like that. Yeah. Well, it causes cancer, so I guess you can't use it. That <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also there's uh, um, uh, the 
story, Memphis Heat. Uh, it's about two hours long. Come out a couple years ago. I could not find my copy. I did have a copy. Shane Storm, if you're listening, send me another copy of that, Memphis Heat. Um, I watched it two times in a row when I first got it. It's a... Um, Oh, fuck. It's got about everyone that come through Memphis territory, and it's got about oldest footage as you can get off of there. Um, it's got, um, you know, uh, the Fargos. It's got uh, all, just everything. Dundee telling about how, any, you know, you walk in any, any place down in when it was so over, you didn't buy a drink ever. You know, you just, you was just over. You know, yeah. they're being at the right time at the right time. Um, you know, Elvis is there. Uh, the music is there. And wrestling was there, you know, all, all at the right time, man. It's just for it to, to really explode when it did, you know, in the seventies and eighties, like it did. So um, it's it's another little um, shit documentary. Is what I want to say is uh, more of a documentary than a movie, but it's really really good. I think it's been out a couple years now, but it's called Memphis Heat. Anyone can find a copy of that. Excuse me. There's a only. Um, it was on YouTube at one time. They took it down. There's only. Um, a little uh, two and three minute uh, promos from it that, that you know get it over right now on YouTube. I did check. If anyone finds it though, put it back up there. I'd like to see it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that Memphis style, man, nothing like it. I tell you what, um, I loved it, man. I loved it. It's really good, good stuff. So uh, well, let me let me ahead. ask you something about that though. So you know, because I I know I went from you know obviously I watched the San Francisco stuff when I was young, like really young on TV, and then next I found WWF, but after that I found the NWA, and I much preferred the Southern Style Wrestling. What do you think about the actual in-ring wrestling stands out so much? Because I don't know if I can always put my finger on it, because definitely in Memphis there was some goofy shit along with their believable stuff, you know? Yeah, well, I think it's this. I think the NWA had the actual in-ring wrestling, mm-hmm. you know, wrestling, uh, back and forth, chain wrestling, uh, you know, angles, you know, that, that meant, you know, going to different directions. The, the Memphis, to me, uh, you know, it was wild. Uh, there was more punching, kicking, uh, eye gouging. You know, there was some wrestling, but it, but it wasn't so much. You didn't go in there and see a lot of chain wrestling every week or anything like that. You know, mm-hmm. it was just the style of that brawling. You know, you might see Lawler throwing fire one week. Um, uh, during promos, people would come out during other people's promos on TV, live TV, and uh, take them to the ring and start something right there, and you know, go back and forth, back and forth, and set up the angle for you know the the following town weeks at town. So I say the biggest difference is. Um, you know, like um, Malenko said one time, uh, Bobby, I'm going to teach you how to wrestle. He said, God bless those guys up in Kentucky and Tennessee and West Virginia, but all they want to do is kick each other, punch each other, and poke each other in the eyes. He said, I'm going <laughs> to teach you how to wrestle. I'm like, yes, sir, you know. So I think the biggest uh, difference was, uh, again, NWA in the ring, you had, you know, all those great performers um, yeah, you might have someone poke an eye or, you know, do some, you know, cheating and some things like that. But in uh, Memphis, they took it to the extreme to where, you know, uh, Jerry Lawler uh, kicks Terry Funk in a no fans match and Funk's got a board in his hand and pokes, and pokes in the eye, you know, to, like I said, uh, uh, Bachwinkle coming to town and, and having, you know, different title changes that did or did not take place. Um, they had the gimmick matches, you know, um, they had, they had, they brought people in that drew big houses 
And um, you just went with that style. It was just that brawling, some wrestling and brawling and believability. I think that's the three things uh, were, were different that you didn't have uh, the brawling as much in New York or, or the NWA. Um, you know, you didn't uh, didn't have the cartoonism as, as you did in the WWF there. Because it was more realistic, because that's the believability of the, the Memphis style. Just like the, again, with that in the NWA, you had that believability of them. Um, just more punching and gouging, probably, and angles, uh, being more uh, specific angles with gimmicks and stuff, you know. And uh, maybe not getting, not, um, you know, you turn on NWA, nothing wrong with all these products that you watch. Same thing with New York back then. Probably squash matches went pretty quick, you know. Um, Memphis usually had a couple of competitive matches on their program each week that drew you in that, you know, you wanted to go buy a ticket that night to see, you know, who's wrestling who. Um, you could tell some guys were going to get beat, of course, on the undercard, but but uh, for the most part, you had, you know, competitive matches each week. Uh, when I say that, established the guys that were in that territory mm-hmm. got 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 those matches, you know, weren't on there getting squished. I mean, some guys went on and got beat every week. That that that's obvious, but but also they, they were a part of that territory that was getting wins outside of the TV, you know. So, um, any other questions about that? It's a great question, by the way. Yeah, I just you know I kind of wanted to level into that a little bit because I mean I I know what it was. I think I know what it was that I liked about it, but. You know, I was going to say, because you say the believability and then a fucking mummy comes out, you know, so it's not, uh, you know what I mean? There's just, there's things, yeah. and, you know, so I just kind of wanted to see if you had an answer for it, but yeah. Well, they had Frankenstein come out down here in Memphis at one point, you know, um, hell, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, I I think it was like Dundee said, right time, right place, you know, um, uh, he, I forgot who Frankie was in the box. Like you said, there was a mummy there, um, just like there wasn't Smokey. Uh, but hell, they had a mummy in Mexico, you yeah. know, mummy in Brazil. I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I don't, um, I don't, I don't discredit them companies for that. It's just, um, I think you just maybe ran out of a creative idea or you, you need to do something because that's what the promoter needed to be done, you know, or the owners needed to be done or wanted it to be done. Um, so yeah, there's. I think the believability outweighs all the skepticism of of that. You know. Yeah, it could very well be. So, um, you know. Anyway. Yeah, like Lord Humongous, which look, I, some of my favorite movies are the Mad Max series, specifically the Road Warrior, which Lord yeah. Humongous is the villain in. But the other day, I saw a picture of Ron Fuller standing next to Lord Humongous, and Ron Fuller's like half a foot again taller than the guy, and he's also wearing a hat, so that adds like yeah. four or five inches. And then you're like, that's yeah, Lord not quite so humongous there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, we're going to talk about some talent, okay? Okay. I've got a couple different lists here. I've got a list of guys that I, um, that just from the Memphis territory, like I said, we're going to probably leave off some names. Uh, add in whenever you want to, Jeremy. Then I'm going to add in some names that I actually got to work with, had a pleasure sharing the ring with, and this brotherhood or his fraternity called professional wrestling. Um, just start off with, uh, throwing some names out there. Uh, uh, Jackie Fargo, Don and Roughhouse Fargo. Um, of course, the fabulous ones, um, Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee. Again, you got superstar, the king, you know, uh, Tommy Rich, Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, Kamala, uh, Hanson, Jimmy Valiant, Austin Idol, uh, referee, Jerry Calhoun, uh, Paul Morton, Ricky Morton's dad was a referee there. Uh, 
Terry Funk come through there, Jeff Jarrett, um, uh, Ricky and Robert Gibson. Uh, Ricky Gibson was uh, Robert's partner there at one time, and he had a car accident, and then that's uh, where the Rock and Roll Express got together. Not said it happened at that exact time, but uh, Rocky Johnson came through there. Uh, Joe LaDuke, Eddie Marlin, Tommy and Eddie Gilbert, Lynn Rossi, Toji Yamamoto, uh, Bobby Eaton, um, of course, Andy Kaufman, we'll talk about a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, Dirty Dutch Mantel, um, let's see, the, uh, the Nick Bockwinkel came through there, um, the Mask Man, um, it was Austin Idle, one of the funniest things is, is, uh, uh, one of the clips I watched the other day was, uh, tell them Mexican to get out of here. <laughs> you had Lance Russell and Dave Brown. That was your commentators. You know, I had to throw that in there because that's one of Lance's favorite things. You know, tell them Mexican to get them out of here. Yeah. And, uh, you, you had Honky Talk Man, the punk rock Wayne Ferris. We'll talk about a little bit more later on here. Uh, uh, Tracy Smothers, uh, Don and Al Green. You don't hear their names too much. Um, they were there. Um, the Von Verens with uh, uh, Saul Wandroff. Uh, Don and Al Green, I got to meet them one time in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, I didn't know who they were because they were a little bit before my time, but apparently they were huge, you know, sellout wrestlers down there in the Tennessee Territory. Um, I just didn't know how big they were when I'd met them. They were still working some shows when I was done my about 10 matches I had before I went to Malenko's for anyone to smart me up that it's a work, dumbass. Um, but, uh, but Don and Al, they were helping some young guys out, and uh, they were the fabulous Green Brothers, so I just wanted to make mention of them. Um, have I left anyone off this list? Sputnik oh, Moreau, I left Jesus. him off. Well, uh, we're going to talk about, about Sput- we're going to yeah. talk about Sputnik in a moment. Um, yeah, that's why I left the last problem. Yeah, uh, Eddie Gilbert, um, Kabuki, Hogan wrestled there as Sterling yeah. Silver. Um, of course, Austin yes, Idol. Yeah, Austin Idol as Black D- uh, Negro. Was it Diamante Negro? Uh, yeah, that's what he said. Tell him Mexican to get out of yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> that was good. Orndorff was there. Uh, Ellering, um, you know, I'm just kind of picking names. Oh, Joe, Joe LaDuke. Okay. So when I was first catching some of the stuff that I didn't get to watch back in the day on Amazon, when they put that all up for streaming, Mm -hmm. they're one of the first times I see Joe LaDuke come out for an interview, right? And he's got his lumberjack Mm -hmm. gear and everything and his really thick French Canadian accents going. And he pulls his beanie cap off, and he has pre-scored his forehead. So as the cap comes off, he's already started bleeding. Um, yeah. oh, God. And uh, <laughs> somebody somebody says something. They call him crazy, like Lance Russell. Oh, you're crazy or something. And oh, I'm not crazy. Yeah. I am insane. And I'm like, that fucking guy saved that line for like six weeks, waiting. The next time somebody calls me crazy, I have the perfect comeback. Yes, I do. Um, but I also wanted to kind of hit some tag teams real quick too. Yeah. Uh, the Freebirds wrestled there when it was just, when it was just Terry and, uh, uh, Michael Hayes. And there's one, there's one routine that was goofy as shit. It's not as good as rolling around on the floor because uh, Bill Mercer touched your van, but it's it's headed up there where (laughs) they got a, they got a towel over Michael Hayes' face. Because he's too pretty for the audience. Too to look. pretty, yes. Yeah, of course. Too pretty for the audience to look at. And Terry takes the towel off, and man, yeah, Terry Gordy, he had some physical mannerisms that are just fucking solid gold to watch when he's being interviewed. Yeah. The way he kind of hunches his body down, and I yeah, always, baby Huey, 
Yeah, and I always think he was probably just trying to stay in frame because he was so goddamn big, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. but that bit was funnier and shit. Uh, the sheep herders yeah. were there. The stud stable, which was Cactus Jack and Gary Young, um, Zambui Express. The Nightmares, Ken Wayne and Danny Davis. The Nasty Boys were there. The Moondogs, uh, Rex and Spot were there. Uh, the Midnight yes. Rockers went through there. The Midnight Rockers were created by Vern Gagne because he was trying to capture the heat of the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express. So he right. just kind of jammed their names together. You know, he's like, oh, we'll just have them both. But what if they listened to country rock instead? You know, <laughs> Vern was cutting edge, if nothing else. Yeah. The Fantastics, um, the Fabulous Ones, the yes. Dirty White Boys, and I did want to bring up that Memphis had their own Blonde Bombers. Yep. Larry Latham and Wayne Ferris. Wayne, Ferris, Wayne, Wayne yep. Ferris, who would go on to become the Honky Tonk Man eventually. Um, yep. You know, so yeah, they had some great tag teams down there as well as single competition. Of course, Tennessee That's at right. one point was a tag team market. Yeah. Like yep. I said, I had Don and Al Green down there, the Fargo brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to throw you out some, a drinking uh, thing here real quick to uh, Jackie Fargo versus uh, Herb Welch back in a program, <laughs> two out of three falls. Billy Wicks was there. I mentioned saw, saw Weinbroff was there. Um, then, now listen, this tag team match, okay? Main event one here, two out of three falls, and it's the Blue Infernos versus Buddy Fuller and Herb Welch. What about that? Now, that's um, uh, five, six, seven <laughs> shots right there. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, a lot of people came through this territory, man. Um, uh, they had Ginger the Bear there. Um, they, that was their bear to use down there. Um, gosh, mighty man. I just uh, Anyway, I'm sure we probably left off someone on that list, oh. but I'm going to go over a list. Go ahead. You got some more? Well, no, no, no. We, we left off a ton, but let's let's keep yeah, moving yeah. here. So, I'm uh, going to keep on moving before we get to numbers. Uh, our next topic, uh, we're going to change pace after this. I want to mention this uh, because I these are guys that I got to wrestle with and got to know most of them pretty darn well. Um, I got to wrestle Dutch Mantel, Jeff Jarrett, Bill Dundee, uh, of course, Tracy Smothers, uh, Handsome Jimmy Valiant. I got to wrestle him, Tommy Rich, Bobby Eaton, Ricky and Robert Morton, uh, or uh, Ricky Morton, uh, Buddy Landell, Dirty White Boy, Jimmy Golden, uh, here's your shot, Robert Fuller, uh, and the Fantastics, um, and of course, Jerry the King Lawler. So that's about 20, I don't know how many names there, 20, 22 names there that I got to wrestle throughout my career at some point or another. Um, and and uh, I can honestly say through all those guys, I don't have a bad word to say about any of them, man. Um, I learned so much from many of these guys, especially ones I work around uh, you know, each night with and got to travel with. And then just um, to be in a ring with uh, guys like in Smoky Mountain, uh, I was in a battle royal one time and then a tag team match against uh, Jimmy Golden, Robert Fuller, you know, uh, just to work with Dirty White Boy in an opening program to get, the, you know, someone that's been around like that. And, um, you know, then eventually you get to wrestle the king himself, Jerry the King Law. Yeah. But uh, those are just names, um, you know, I, people I've gotten to know uh, through the years, you know, uh, Dutch was one of my earlier matches and. Uh, we had met before I even come down to Smoky Mountain, and uh, believe it or not, Dutch could play basketball, so we played a wrestle a lot of high school gyms. Sometimes uh, Dutch and I and Robert Gibson, he, uh, him as well, uh, we'd be out there playing basketball before the ring even got there sometimes. Just stuff like that that you remember. Um, you know, uh, being on a road Bobby Eaton, I got to do the EA video, uh, sports uh, video game, Mayhem, that's still out there. Um, 
from uh, EA Sports that's in the game. But, uh, you know, I got to, got to spend a month in a row with a guy like that and just, you know, learn and listen and, and study with, you know. So all those guys got their start at some point and went through Memphis Territory and uh, just sent out my gratitude list there, I guess. I'll have that for my day, that these are guys I got to meet, and I'm thankful for it. And I'm thankful I got to do some business with Jerry DeKing Lawler. And uh, I'm sure we left some talent off of there. But um, but that's – and, of course, uh, Jim Cornette, can't forget that. <laughs> you can't forget that name at all. I'm not going to let that one slip my mind, you know. Uh, we put over Jimmy Hart last week uh, on the program, um, and I have to put over Jim, uh, Jim Cornette on this week's program. Uh, because, you know, he, he helped me get into the Smoky Mountain Territory and gave me my first big break in the USA. But, uh, of course, he got his wrestling uh, career started as a photographer, a kid with a camera out in Memphis, Tennessee. So uh, thank you, Jimmy. Appreciate that very much. Uh, you want to say anything else before we move on here, Jeremy? No, because, you know what, I mean, we could just keep listing names all day. I mean, we didn't <laughs> exactly. even. Exactly. Yeah, we didn't, you know, uh, uh, Jeff, Jarrett, well, maybe even not so obviously, because we haven't really talked about how important the Jarretts were overall in this market, yeah, right. you know. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just we could keep going. You know, I did we miss Superstar Bill Dundee? Now, I think I said him quick, but because uh, I said Superstar King and and. Well, he's, he's, anyway. he's, he's easy to overlook. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I see what you've done there. <laughs> okay. Well, I say what, let's do this. Let's jump into something that's very important. Yes. Uh, you might have to have a shot because of who the promoter was in this show, but um, something I always liked and enjoyed, and um, if you get a chance to watch that Memphis Heat or if you get a chance to pull up in a YouTube video about this gentleman um, or read anything about him, I think he's a great character. Sputnik Monroe come through Tennessee, man, and he was over in a Tennessee territory. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about him or you want me to? Well, you know, I'm going to let you do it because I'll, I'll have some things to say as we wrap on him because gotcha. I, I think there are some important points to make here. And um, But go ahead because you've, you've okay. got some stories laid out here. Yeah. Uh, so, Sputnik Monroe was born in Dodge City, Kansas. I like that right off the bat, man. So, uh, anyway, um, he was picked up a black hitchhiker one day at a gas station when he was too tired to make it to a town driving down Alabama. And so, when he got to the building, people just took to him and started raising hell, and especially this one lady. And uh, so, he took him in. And this one lady was yelling and cussing this and that at him. And I just found this out this week, actually. And uh, so Sputnik pulled the curtain back and kissed the black guy on the cheek. And this lady called him a Sputnik uh, because of the uh, as a commie, you know, yeah. because of space race that's going on. Uh, they had the Sputnik, uh, the, the communist, uh, the USSR. The satellite. Uh, space Thank you. Yeah. And uh, he kissed the black guy on the cheek. Of course, that just really got him to raise all kinds of hell. Uh, but also Sputnik was known for helping integrate um, black and white uh, integration, I guess, of professional sports in the South with the help of uh, promoter Roy Welch. And what happened was uh, Sputnik, he would go down on Bell Street, hang out with a lot of his uh, black or African-American friends. He would give out a bunch of tickets. And um, so when it comes to the matches on Ellis Auditorium uh, on a Monday night, uh, they noticed that the black section was full, but the white section in the bottom and all the ringside, there was still a lot of open seats down there that could have been filled, but um, they weren't being at that particular time. But uh, finally, Sputnik, you know, he held out. He said, um, I'm not sure how he said it, and this and that. He said, you know, I'm not going to wrestle anymore if my black friends can't sit down here with my white friends, you know. 
Um, and soon enough, uh, apparently from him giving out the tickets and him holding out, uh, and, and also, I guess, to, to Roy Welch's credit, he's, he realized, too, like, you know, I understand one color, and that's green. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it doesn't matter the color of skin of who's sitting in that seat and what seat and why. As long as they're in a seat, I'm getting green coming through the door, you know. So uh, they eventually was drawing $10,000 houses every Monday night at Ellis Auditorium thanks to Sputnik. And they eventually went on it and had a match uh, at a ball field there in Memphis that drew $20,000 that stayed uh, a record until the Monday Night Wars took place. Um, now, Sputnik was a very unique character. You can hear all kinds of different wild stories from him uh, for threatening to punch a cowboy's horse to a cowboy not coming on. Um, I've, I've heard all kinds of different stories about him um, going to uh, fight a TV star and this and that. But he's probably best known for... Um, Going down on Bill Street, and he, had, you know, just not only could blacks not go to where white people could drink, sometimes whites weren't allowed to go and, you know, uh, be around the black people where they drink in black bars. But but Sputnik would do it, okay? And he hang out with them, like I said, have a few drinks with them, and was friends with them, as he called them his friends. Well, he'd get arrested, and of course, uh, he would, um, He'd, he'd go on to hire a black attorney and pay him $25, and as soon as he got out of it, you know, he, he'd be right down there again, you know, doing the same thing, the same shenanigans, if you will. But that was just his deal, man. Uh, he did serve, I think, the United States Navy, um, and he was, you know, pretty tough old guy from what I hear. You know, I don't know about, like, getting in there and shooting with you, but as far as, you know, he knew how to fight. He started off in carnivals and stuff, and he's a tough, grizzled old veteran-type guy. Uh but I've heard it said, and it might have been in the Memphis, uh, the Memphis Heat uh, documentary. They said if you go anywhere in the South, um, in, in Tennessee and Alabama, the three pictures on a wall you would see would be uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Martin Luther King, and Sputnik Monroe. <laughs> so that's how he was if you went to a black person's house down in the South. Uh, that's getting over if you're up there of Jesus Christ and uh, Martin Luther King. Oh, yeah, that's huge, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's just kind of uh, the story I wanted to get across for for uh, Sputnik, and and uh, some of those are secondhand stories. Some of them just stuff I've read. Um, I just think he's a crazy character. Uh, also, the show uh, uh, song um, Otis uh, John Blank Otis can't think of the last name. It was called um, The Legend of Sputnik Moreau. It's a pretty damn good song, man. It's a pretty good song. I put it up there. I'll try to put it up on my Twitter later on today. Um, I can't think of Otis's last name that sings it, but it's a hell of a good song, man. Um, what is Otis's last name? No. Otis, Otis, uh, what the fuck? Otis Gibbs. Otis Gibbs okay. is the guy's name. Look up uh, Otis Gibbs and, and The Legend of Sputnik Monroe. I think you'll like that song a whole lot, man. It's pretty good. So Yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, I've heard it on one of Jim Cornette's shows, and it, it's a good song. Or no, you know, it was on Brian's show, I believe. But okay. yeah, it was, it was a good song. Um, now, so... Uh, Sputnik Monroe, he did a thing that I think has only been done by him and Bret Hart, maybe one or two other people, where in the same crowd, or in a slightly different crowd, you can be a heel and a face at the same time, just depending on who is the dominant person in the audience. Like Bret Hart during his evil Canadian phase. He was getting booed in America and cheered in Canada. Sputnik Monroe would go into a room, and once they had integrated the audience, the white audience is booing him, the black audience is cheering him. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that is, fuck, man, I, that's probably the highest, uh, 
praise you can give to a pro wrestler is being able to be a heel and a face simultaneously. Yeah, because he didn't change. He no. didn't change. He was he was a he was a terror. He was a heel, you know, mm-hmm. and he didn't have to change his style because you automatically had the instant heel uh, from all those white people that they hadn't smartened up yet. You know, like hey, you're over there and you're friends with those black people. And, and you shouldn't be doing this and doing that. You're getting arrested. And they hate him. He's a heel. And a black people going, man, we got a guy. That, you know, he's fighting for us. This white man's out there. This crazy wild man. He may be mean and cheating stuff. They got this white streak down his hair. But man, he's our friend, and mm-hmm. we like him. And they automatically don't like the white man in the ring. So he's the heel. You know, his opponent. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty good, Jeremy. That is. I mean, that's to me, that's like that's crazy right there. That just that you can pull that off. But yeah, I mean, he would go out and he'd cultivate this audience, or you know, cult. Well, I guess friendships with the local black community, and he'd go out yeah. and hang out at their cafes and bars, and you know, he get when he get picked up, it was always for a bullshit charge like mopery or something. You know? Yeah, mopery. I heard that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the or other, mopery. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing I wanted to say is, um, I don't know if this other story is true, but the two in my head are always connected because there's the story that in Vegas. When the Rat Pack would come through, Sammy Davis Jr. wasn't allowed to enter the front through the front with wrestling. He had to come in through the back door with the help. And Frank Sinatra said, "Fuck you guys, we're not going to play there anymore if he doesn't if he can't come in with us, stay at the same place and eat at the same restaurant, drink at the same bars." Now I don't know if the Frank Sinatra one is true, but we know for a fact that the Sputnik Monroe one is true. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, okay. that's just that's just a hell of a story and a hell of a legacy. Uh, Sputnik, of course, uh, went, you know, he didn't pass away till 2006. Yeah. So yeah I think he, he lived to be 78, 79 years old. Yeah, he was with us fairly recently. So, you know, and yeah. I guess I guess there's a movie stuck in development hell about him. So whoever's yes. working on that, fuck it, find somebody with a small budget and get it made because I'd love to see it. I would, hey, if you're out there, I think it was being uh, around 2007, they started writing some scripts and it's for HBO. Hey, if I could be a part of it, get a hold of me, man. Hit me up at Bobby Blaze 744. Hit the professor up at the Geekish Cast, or hit us both up at the uh, Bell to Bell Blaze uh, podcast on on Twitter, man. Let us know if you need some help on this. Let us do some research or or, or uh, do something. Hell, I'll play an old Sputnik. I'll, I'll play him in his old age, you know, if you need me to. <laughs> I don't know, man. Just put it out there. But yeah, I heard there was film, film and development too. So uh, let's move on here, Jeremy, off Sputnik, because that is a great legacy of what he what he did for wrestling and for, for black and integration in the South. Uh, uh, and after that, uh, other professional sports followed suit in the South, just so you know. Uh, that that says a whole lot there. I mentioned this map I have. Now, it's not some big treasure map, okay? But I've got this map, and I'm going to tell you, we were talking about Memphis wrestling, uh, or Tennessee wrestling, and it's divided out. It's going to be pretty easy for you folks to follow me. I'm just going to throw some different things out there. On the Memphis end of wrestling, some of the towns they went to, of course, was Memphis, uh, Tubelo, Mississippi, Jackson, Tennessee, Jonesboro, Arkansas, Fort Girardi, uh, Missouri, Evansville, uh, Louisville, and Kentucky, uh, Lexington, Kentucky, okay? Mm-hmm. Those were the towns that pretty much the Memphis end of the town ran. Over on the uh, 
the Nashville end where they ran, they ran uh, Nashville and Bowling Green. Bowling Green, Kentucky is about 30, 35 miles above Nashville, Tennessee. They ran Chattanooga, Tennessee, down into Huntsville, Alabama, down into Birmingham, Alabama. Okay, that was your mid part. That's what Nashville. On the Knoxville end, they ran at. They ran over in some of these towns I'm real familiar with. In fact, uh, just heard the stud cast this week talking about Harlan, Kentucky, and I wrestled there, and I tell you what, I, I wanted to write the stud and let them know, man, I, those riots down there in his day, they sounded so wild, but I've been down there, and I know how those people are. Um, I remember getting ready to go to a show there at about 93, 94, and uh, one of our newspaper gentlemen here, uh, the editor of the paper, I was from with his son, he was born in Hazard. He said, you be careful going down there, son. He said, them people are real wrestling fans in Hazard. But, uh, yeah, the uh, the eastern end of Tennessee had Hazard and Harlan. I, I meant Harlan, Kentucky, being the toughest place, not Hazard. I, I got, damn it, I got, in a, listen to this. I was in high school, a senior, Jeremy, mm-hmm. um, and we was playing a basketball game in, in Hazard. Um, Harlan's a tough place, I'll say that. That's what I meant to say if I was in Hazard. But in Hazard, a fucking fan uh, jumped out of stands and punched me in the face in a basketball game. Yeah, that happened. At a basketball uh, game? At a basketball game. One of our players, a couple inches taller than me, is only I think of, uh, lo- longer blonde hair, as long as you can have it in basketball. I think he ran over a cheerleader at halftime back then when you're out there on the court or whatever because mm-hmm. the guy, he jumped over the railing, and he said, is this Tim? It was off like one of them Hanson things. I think he was looking for another guy, but I ended up taking a punch for him. But he said uh, he said uh, something about, you disrespecting our girls or something. I don't know because I, I just there playing basketball. But anyway, um, the way he jumped, I got to wrestle in Hazard eventually. And that, 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 uh, the way that building's laid out, it's like an armory type. You go down a ramp. And so when he jumped over, he actually landed shorter than me uh, as I'm coming down the ramp. So I'm about 6'1", and this guy was probably about 5'7", or 5'8", if that. But he also, where he landed, he's down below me, so he couldn't get a good punch off. And I saw him coming over, so when he threw the punch, I turned my head, and he just barely glazed the top of my head. And uh, I'd fight you back then anyway. It didn't matter to me. Uh, But he glazed the top of my head, but just barely got a punch off. And um, I went to grab him by that time. One of our assistant coaches already grabbed me uh, around the, my pulling me back, but there was another man pulling him back. And what it was, it was a boy that had went to school there that had been out about a year or two. So he's only about, you know, 19, 20 years old. And I was 18 at the time. And that man was the principal because uh, he had seen what happened too and got it separated really quick. But yeah, that, that's how crazy people are down there. Yeah, well, uh, see, I, when you when you first started telling the story, and you're like, oh, and a fan jumped out of the, the stands and took a swing. Yeah, that I'm, was at a basketball game. Well, yeah, I'm thinking, fuck, man, you must have been doing some heel shit, you know, and then you're like, at a basketball game, I and I'm like. I just scored points of getting rebounds, motherfucker. That's what I did. <laughs> I played the game. Oh, I, yeah, I was going to say, you're like a really talented heel if you can, you know, ham it up that good at a basketball well, I, game. I think what happened, honestly, the, 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 a cheerleader got knocked down at halftime by one of our players when he was coming back out on the court. And I think the guy, uh, you know, it might have been his girlfriend or just being an asshole or whatever. He yeah. was waiting, waiting for that guy, and it, it hit me. That's the only thing I figure. Um, got tired honestly. of waiting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay, other eastern part of the town, you got Knoxville, uh, part of the state, rather, you got Knoxville, uh, Johnson City, and then Kingsport and uh, the Bristol area up in that area. Uh, the Tri-Cities that uh, the eastern part uh, ran down in Tennessee. So I hope I kind of laid out that whole state when you say Tennessee wrestling 
would go all the way up into, you know, Kentucky, uh, Virginia, a uh, little bit towards Carolina, down into Alabama, uh, all across the great state of Tennessee, of course, Mississippi, Arkansas, Missouri, and uh, probably a couple of town spot shows uh, over in Illinois even, and up in Indiana, like I said, Evansville in that area. So uh, we'll be talking about some of these other towns in just a minute on our schedule. But any question about, you know, towns on there, I'd say that damn Heart of Kentucky is a crazy-ass town, uh, but so is Hazard. And there's a lot of just good old wrestling fans up in this area. That's the, that's the you know, big thing. It's known for wrestling up here, man, wrestling. And uh, people had to have it. And you know where they got it? They got it on TV, Jeremy. Oh, yeah. So let's go on to the next one here. Let's talk about the TV schedule a little bit. Yes. Okay. TV was shot live on uh, Saturday mornings at 11 o'clock on Memphis TV, uh, WMC TV5. That was a big deal, too, with the split, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Lawler and um, Jarrett Lawler had a uh, in with the uh, big TV station. That helped them grow their territory, their business, too, because they didn't lose the – uh, the big TV contract they changed to the went to the right schedule I guess. Uh, so after you did that, you went to um, they showed that show on uh, Jackson Tennessee every Saturday night at 10:30, uh, Nashville on Saturdays at 5 p.m., Chattanooga at Saturdays at 11 a.m., Louisville WVAE Channel 3 uh, at noon. As well as the station I listened to it on Lexington, Kentucky. That was uh, WLEX number 18 out of, out of Lexington, and I got to watch that at noon. So it just been up for like an hour. So I got to watch that first, you know, as soon as it happened, pretty much. Uh, down in Bowling Green, they got it at 10:45 a.m. Uh, p.m. rather p.m. I'm sorry about that. Evansville got theirs on Saturdays at three o'clock. All the way up to Dayton, Ohio, they got theirs at Saturday at noon. And down in Tupelo, Mississippi, they got theirs Saturday at noon also. Now, the, big, the three big shows, of course, were Memphis at the Mid-South Coliseum on Monday, Louisville at the Garden on Tuesday, and Nashville on Saturday night. Now, Evansville was a uh, regular Tuesday night, uh, yeah, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday night town. And they throw in some spot shows either in Jackson, Tennessee or Jonesboro, Arkansas, or on Sundays, uh, as well as shows in Tubelo, Mississippi, and Lexington, Kentucky. Now, by the time I was a little bit older, Lexington became a regular town. Uh, they did the first Thursday of every month uh, starting in around 1982, and uh, they would either do a spot show somewhere else in Kentucky or over in Indiana, like I mentioned. So they had a huge covering of, of television back then, man. And, of course, again, you had Lance Russell and Dave Brown every Saturday morning, and everyone wanted to tune in. Um, our times changed at different times because um, uh, TV schedule now, and, and Memphis is an hour behind us. So when when they would come on at 11 o'clock there and it's noon here, you know, we're talking live TV. But then sometimes they would preempt it and we'd have something local and we might not get it till one o'clock. And you know how that goes, you know, different things. But for the most part, we were getting to see it pretty much live uh, as it happened when, he's, when, he, when it took place in Memphis, Tennessee. So anyway, any question on that? Because I love that schedule, man. Uh, and I guess some of these schedules traveling each week, too, when you went to these towns, I think the average traveling schedule in Memphis uh, was um, uh, around 2,000 miles a week uh, driving-wise. So, you know, you got a shitload of miles in, in there. Yeah, in, that's, in a, that's a lot of – Back of cars, you know. 
Yeah, I was gonna say that's a lot of that's a lot of space to cover because I was wondering how big you know big as far as like travel time the, the uh, territory would be, and that's quite a bit. Two thousand miles a week is that's. A lot. I know on Saturday mornings, I you know just listen to Tracy and Ricky and Robert. Uh, you do that TV on that Saturday morning, and you have a show in Nashville that night. So you'd have to leave Memphis to get over to Nashville to do that show, and then if you if you didn't, um, so on when you done that Nashville on a Saturday. If you didn't have something around Nashville, you probably have maybe over in Jonesboro, Arkansas. You have to go all the way back to Memphis to do a uh, Sunday spot show, you know. So a lot of times I was hoping it didn't happen, but it, it, they'd stay wet, uh, east of Nashville so you could keep on going to go right up to Louisville the next night, you know, and keep pace with it. But sometimes it just didn't work out that way. They to, that Sunday they'd have to go all the way back out to Nashville or out to Memphis again and then <laughs> on to Tuesday uh, or the Monday, go back to um, Tuesday, rather, go back to Louisville and start heading east again. So it wasn't the best laid out. But if you look at some of those towns, you know, Lexington, Louisville, uh, Nashville, they're laid out pretty good, you know, as far as getting to them in Evansville. But um, unless you stayed out in the west part in Memphis area, you know, your best pro- probably best part was to live in Nashville where you get all of them within, a, you know, you could be home six days a week probably if you lived in Nashville. Yeah. That's, so anyway. Um... Well, no, that's a, I mean, you know, it's definitely not the worst traveling I've heard of, but it's still, that's, that's some fucking miles, man. Yeah, it's not the worst I've heard of either, yeah. but, but but it's knocking them out, that's for damn sure. Yeah, that is, that is. Um, right. Let's see here, do I have any questions about the schedule now? I think you pretty much covered everything there. Yeah. Um, so number three, I've got down to shifting alliances. I like this. Yeah. This, you're going to smart me up a lot. I only knew about... I knew about some of these, and I knew when I was involved in NWA and AWA. But but take us through this lesson right here, Jeremy, because this is this is really shifting alliances. Take us through it. Yeah, so you know, I I always found it kind of interesting because I could never figure out when certain titles were defended in Memphis. Because sometimes you'd see the AWA Southern title, and sometimes you'd see an NWA title, and so I wasn't sure if they were affiliated with both at the same time or what. So, getting getting ready to do research for this week, I kind of came across the timeline as it's laid out. So, Gullis and uh, Roy Welch, that's number 12, um, <laughs> started the company in the 40s. They joined the NWA almost immediately in 1948, so they were part of the NWA from very early on. So then we'll go ahead and just fast forward to 1977, 78, right in there, is when Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler are like, you know, fuck this noise, we're out. So they kind of jumped ship, and I believe they stayed with the NWA, right? Yes. Okay, and they stayed in the NWA until 1986, at which point they teamed up with Vern Gagne and kind of became a subsidiary of Gagne's AWA. That's correct. I remember that happening around 88. I was getting involved in a business, so I was paying a lot more attention that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, and at some point in there, between you know what was it, the eighty-one-ish and on, uh, is when Gulas folded. So they pick up that territory that Gulas used to have, um, but they also took a lot of the titles that Nick Gulas had as well. Um, but so now they're with the AWA. Then they there was this thing that was tried with uh, Memphis AWA. 
and WCCW where they, they kind of unified and did this stuff where they all became like one company for a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Vern, just like every time he does this, he like got past one of the shows and fuck you guys, I'm out. So, yeah. so then as this goes on, now Jerry Jarrett buys what's left of WCCW from the Von Erich family and then begins to combine them into a company called USWA. So there's a bunch of changes that go through there. So now the USWA, right. Bobby, Bobby, would you call that? It was like a a fourth company in wrestling. Like if you were really into wrestling in the 90s, you knew about USWA, but otherwise you probably didn't. Yeah, I could say that's fair. That's, but yeah. yeah, but I mean, it was there. There were names there. Jerry Lawler was carrying yeah. the title there. And next week, of course, we're going to talk about the fact that Jerry Lawler's had more world titles than anybody ever in history. Um but so here's I'm going to just list some titles off that they had through the Memphis area. And um, I don't even think this includes the USWA, but we'll see as I go through the titles. So there's the CWA Heavyweight Championship, which I think is the ugly. That's the ugly belt. I'm thinking. Okay. Um, well, that's the license plate belt, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And yes. that thing's that thing's ugly as sin. That thing looks like polywog splattered on a muddy fence. Uh, then there's the CWA Tag Team Championships, the CWA Southwestern Heavyweight Championship, CWA Super Heavyweight Championship, which I guess was a title that was real brief and for 300 pounds and up. Yeah. CWA Tennessee Tag Team Champion. Now, there was only one set of champions with that, and that was Jeff Jarrett and, um, oh, I think I lost it already. Jeff Jarrett and Ricky Morton were the one okay. time champions there. Um, CWA World Heavyweight Championship. Oh, so those are two different titles. CWA World Tag Team Championship. NWA Mid-America Heavyweight Championship. NWA Mid-America Tag Team Championship. NWA United States Tag Team Title. NWA World Six-Man Tag Team Title. CWA slash AWA International Heavyweight Championship. I believe that's probably the one that Austin Idol carried around quite a bit. Okay. Uh, CWA AWA International Tag Team Championship, AWA Southern Heavyweight Championship, AWA Southern Tag Team Championship. That's a lot of titles for for a uh, a wrestling company. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Sure and, is. And, and I I think that the, the Southern Heavyweight title was the one they defended the most. It seemed like that was the one they were you know going back and forth with the Southern when it was the CWA you know yeah Southern you know. Uh, the tag teams and all that uh, before they uh, kind of right in the middle of it all before, like you said, it got stretched out to the USWA and, and before once, you know, once they was not affiliated particularly with the NWA at that time, uh, kind of towards the uh, uh, AWA time period there, there was a Southern heavyweight title that went back and forth a little bit, I think. And that's when uh, Lala was going to fight Bockwinkle for the AWA heavyweight title too. So from about 82 to about 88, those years there, I think it just fluctuated on, you know, the Southern heavyweight title, the Southern tag team titles, the the Southern um, uh, junior title, you know, things like that. Um, And of course you're spread out over a large territory. When you read these titles, you're spreading them out from basically from Goulas, uh, uh, Welch, we said 48 ish because they immediately joined uh, mm-hmm. the NWA. So you're going from like, so 48 for 950 is somewhere in that period through uh, 1990 ish, you know, a, what a 50 year period, correct? Almost. 
from, I'm sorry, from 1948, basically, through, well, 1990, correct? Yeah, right about. Okay, right about there, okay. So, yeah, I mean. If getting... they, I was just thinking if they joined, I'm looking at the times thing here. If they joined in 48, I don't know, immediately uh, did they become a part of NWA in 48 or 49.50. I don't, you know, somewhere around that time. Uh, but you went through the USWA being around 1989, 90. Would that be correct? Did we go much past the, the 90, 91-ish? Um, no, I don't think we. I mean, they do, but they're USWA. They did, but it's, yeah. Yes, but um, it was still even it was still there in the 95 because it was having the the Smoky Mountain and the USWA things back and forth. I'm just thinking about these titles, though. You're still talking about. About a fifty-year period there. Oh yeah, I mean you're okay. 40, 45 years, I think is where okay. It, yeah, because okay. I, I would assume that uh, Mid America probably had champions of some kind, you know, during the period. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, you, so your favorite belt that that uh, which one, the CWA heavyweight uh, prison belt? Well, yeah, whatever that license plate <laughs> monstrosity was. Okay. I, yeah. Um, that thing is just that thing was shit on toast, man. Um, <laughs> oh man! Well, I know we only got a couple more talking points here. I'll take over this first one, and you can kind of start us in on the second one, okay? Okay. We'll we'll talk about both of them, of course. Uh, but uh, number two, one our talking point, uh, one our way is uh, to me, this was a great fucking moment in professional wrestling history, man. It's the Tupelo, Mississippi concession stand brawl. Now, it took place on June the 15th, 1979. It was Lawler and Dundee against the Blonde Bombers, Wayne Ferris, who was Honky Tonk Man, as you mentioned, and Larry Latham, who was also Moondog Spot. Well, it spilled out, of, out into the Tubelo Sports Arena, uh, become one of the most first legendary concession stand brawl to ever take place in wrestling lore. Um, I saw this. Now, in my mind, you have to realize uh, this is, uh, I'm about 15 years old, okay, because it's 1979. When I was, was writing my book and I put this about seeing this in here, um, and in fact, this is about 10 days before my birthday in 1979, so I've got a pretty good recollection of that time period of my life, except for I missed one spot. And I, I was talking to a couple guys, and I ran a story by them. It seemed like, you know, I remember going to school on Monday and everyone's talking about this fucking, you know, the Mississippi concession stand fight, you know, Tublo, Mississippi. Did you see the fight? But then I had to really do some rethinking. Our schools generally let out. If we had had a bad winter that year, we may have went to June 15th, but I doubt it. More than likely, we were out the first, no more than the second week of June. So more likely what happened was that being a Saturday morning, Instead of waiting for school on Monday, which we would have been out, like I said, we probably, what happened, and I had to rethink this when I was writing it all down, this is the conclusion I've come to. When this took place, okay, we met at the pool to play basketball, and everyone that played basketball together at the pool was big wrestling fans. Well, we'd wait till you know, noon or one, whenever the programming went off on a Saturday, because we all had to watch our, you know, Memphis wrestling. Mm -hmm. So when we saw this, we gathered more likely at the pool, not the school, and all started just bullshitting and talking about, did you fucking see this, man? Did you see this? Larry, you know, Jerry Lawler and Larry Latham and throwing a mustard at each other, you know, uh, 
they said everything got busted up in there, all that candy bars and the food. And that. I heard tell now since then, the only thing, because Lance, they was going out, they, they started off the match. If you go back and watch it, which I did the other day, they start off in a ring. And there's a beat down in the ring, and it rolls out of the ring, and, and they get down to the concession. And Lance is, you know, saying, hey, let's follow this, let's follow this. So you think the show is going off the air. And he said, hey, we'll cover this next week if we miss any. And they actually are filming this. Um, I later heard the only thing that was said was, uh, don't bust the uh, popcorn machine. Don't break the popcorn machine. That was their moneymaker there at that concession stand. I guess putting extra salt on it and selling extra soda pops, you know. But um, they busted that concession stand up, man. Trash cans, tables, lids. Um, Hell, he's throwing everything at each other, man. It, it was just it, – I, I get excited talking about it. I, I did watch it again the other day. Um, I, I was just excited sitting there watching it. Not probably as the first time I saw it because I was with a couple of my buddies. But then, like I said, going through the pool and about seven or eight guys that were regular fans that went to all the local shows that we knew and played ball together. So just went over and with fucking going, just kids going berserk like, oh, my God, can you believe this? Man? That's when you know it's real, you know, yep. that wrestling, that realism is, I guess, what I'm getting across there. So um, I just I think it's uh, some of these things we're about just like this next thing, man, it's just important. Uh, it's an important part of the uh, the history and wrestling. In, I gotta get a drink of water in, in Memphis uh, with the Memphis territory, man. I hope oh, you yeah. like that story. I just wanted to put it on that list. I know a lot of our listeners uh, probably have already seen that. If you haven't, go out and find it. It's, it's on YouTube, and it's it's worth watching, man. It's it's really funny. Um, I hadn't watched it for a couple years. Like I said, I was I was researching a couple times. And just get my memory right. And I said, wait a minute, I couldn't went to school that day. I had to go to the swimming pool, you know. Um, and I was talking to one of my buddies about it. And just, uh, it's like, yeah, that, that had to that had be what happened. Went to the pool. Ah. <laughs> Jeremy, I had to get a drink of water. No, I'll tell I, you, we got I, one more to go. And we're going to have, have to have a cold beer tonight somewhere. Yeah. Well, you know, I've uh, I've cut a deal with my doctor. I get to take a, a sleeping pill on the nights I don't drink because I have insomnia really bad, and that's why I started drinking in the first place. And I don't drink on the night before work, so tonight I'm going to be drinking iced tea. But Okay. Yeah. But on Friday, I'll catch up, so it'll be okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right, so number one. Now, I would say this is probably the thing that is mm, most famous to come out of Memphis Wrestling. Yeah, yeah. We touched on this a little bit last week yeah. uh, with Jimmy Hart. But, yeah, um, so, that's why I'm glad you put it number one. I don't know if you saw my side note back to you. Um, I was thinking, you know, that, that Tubelo, Mississippi, the, the the concession stand fight, you know. But, um, it, no, this has to be more so. Um, yeah, this, uh, this, this took Memphis and made it a national thing. This, yeah, yeah this yeah this this took it um and of course i've, I've got to put a uh a, a, a smart ass headline on it i'm calling it watcha <laughs> goes intergender so for those for those in our audience who are too young to remember or maybe with actually with our our demographics for those who have uh early onset dementia um Latka gravis was a character played by Andy Kaufman on a TV show called Taxi, uh, based on his stand-up routine called The Foreign Man. Now, Andy Kaufman was a was a mad genius, I think is the only way to call it, because he would go into character and never come out. He mm-hmm. had he had a character named Tony Clifton that 
he pretended with somebody else, and then when he died, his manager took over so they could maintain the illusion that it was somebody else. Right, right. Um, but Andy Kaufman, a guy who would show up and sing the Mighty Mouse theme song as part of his... <laughs> As part of his routine, a guy who would start reading The Great Gatsby out loud and then tell the audience to calm down because it was a very long book, (laughs) starts wrestling women as part of his comedy act. And then he'd get up and he would call himself the intergender champion, say he could beat any woman. And then he'd start saying shit like, unlike the wrestling on TV, this is real. I'm really wrestling these women and I'm really winning and I can beat any of them. Which apparently Jerry Lawler did not care for. Right. Um, (laughs) And we didn't know until the late 90s whether this shit was real or not. Um, Yeah. And the only way we found out is because a movie called Man uh, Man on the Moon. Man Man on the Moon, yeah. Yeah, it was made and Jerry Lawler played himself. And because of that, we kind of got a little peek behind the curtain. Yeah. And they had matches, um, you know, put Kaufman in a neck brace with the pile driver and then he'd play it up. Fuck. They'd go on Letterman. And you told that story a little bit last week. Yeah. Yeah. So this really took Memphis and took it out national. I mean, you know, they were showing up on national shows and continuing this story. Yeah. The, you know, I think the, with that man on the moon, um, the commentary and some of the things I've read, I don't think Andy Kaufman's parents knew for like 10 years after the fact that, that, Lawler and Kaufman are actually working people, you know, yeah. they kept it that fucking kayfabe, you know, yep. that, um, you know, this is, and, and, and I think from what I hear and, and, and the little I know about it, I think that, um, Kaufman was such a huge wrestling fan and, uh, that was just the best territory to take that idea to. Um, you know, I don't know that Vince or, or Crockett or anyone else at that time, you know, uh, Vern, but certainly not Vern, I wouldn't think would, would want to do that, but, Tennessee with Memphis and, and that area, uh, and him wanting to give back and do something for re- professional wrestling. Cause I understand he was a, you know, big fan of pro wrestling. Um, that was the way to do it. You know, here's, here's my way to give something back. Um, and of course he, he, I'm sure he enjoyed the fuck out of wrestling those girls and having fun with it. Um, some of the footage I watched the other day, uh, they had it, the, the big girl got in there and, and Lala was in her corner was part of the angle. And, uh, she was trying to take Andy down a couple of times, man. He, they worked it pretty good. Uh, he got out of it, of course, and pinned her. Um, and then, uh, some of the promos he would do, you know, like I said, he would take a girl uh, out by the pool and it'd be one of Memphis's larger species, if you will. And he'd spank her and, you know, pin her and, uh, try to dehumanize her, I guess, as a female, but, um, you know, everything to piss people off, man. And like you said, he, uh, pretty much a, a genius, uh, thinking the mentality of it. And also, uh, like I said, talking about getting it all the way to, um, on a Letterman show at that time, was that like 1982 or so that really puts Memphis wrestling on the map because everyone's like, what the fuck is going on in Memphis, man? You know, yeah. uh, what's going on, you know, cause there's not a WrestleMania yet. Um, there's a, a Starcade shortly on the way. Um, yeah, there's been, uh, um, not pay-per-views. What do you call those? Um, what am I thinking about when close, you go? Close circuit. Close circuit. Thank yeah. you. You've had those and stuff. But this here, man, you got a little Saturday morning TV show that we just talked about for an hour or so, uh, hitting all these markets. And then all of a sudden, 
Um, you're up one night watching Letterman. You're like, holy shit, this is getting mainstream media, man. These guys are for real. It's that believability again. It's that believability. Uh, because we certainly believed it and bought every bit of it. And uh, if you watch, go back and watch those fucking pile drivers and stuff. I think Lawler gives them that first move, a headlock. Uh, and just takes them up and drops them. And then Kaufman's in like what appears to be, it's probably like a white uh, sweatpants, but it looks like the long johns and uh, yeah, just the whole gimmick. Man, he's got like the long, old white long johns on and some wrestling boots and, and the hearts out there screaming and Lawler's, you know, doing his thing. I mean, it's just, it's perfect. It's perfect, man. Um, Lotka goes intergender, but when he has to wrestle a real man like Jerry Lawler, well, the outcome's not so good. Yeah, I'll drive her city. <laughs> he should have he should have jumped in the taxi and left probably. You know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, well put. That's a good ending right there. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, you know, before before we sign off, I just want to you know remind everybody, you know, your internet company is selling your information. One way you can protect yourself is to use a virtual private network. You can try out my preferred virtual private network uh, provider, private internet access, by going to uh, tinyurl.com, blaze, P-I-A. It's risk-free for 30 days. Uh, you get two months for free. It's less than three bucks a month. They don't keep any logs, and nobody knows what you're up to. So give them a look. Bobby, anything to close on Memphis with today? Tell all the tickets Jimmy's on the loose. They can run and hide, but they can't find a find a coop. I'm a rocker and a roller and a little funky too. I was raised by a gypsy. That's what handsome's kind of cool. That's it, man. All I can say is I hope you had a good time. I love this uh, doing this one this week because that's the territory I grew up on. Uh, send me some messages out there at Bobby Blaze 744. Hit Jeremy up at the Geekish Cast, please, or hit our joint account up at Bell to Bell uh, Blaze podcast on twitter and uh man just uh holidays coming stay safe stay strong and uh do the be- do yourself the best you can do yourself man take care of each other and, and take care of yourself yeah that's uh pretty much all we can ask that anybody does you know uh, i gotta remind people this close to the holiday season i've got one rule i try to live by don't be a dick um <laughs> that's all the advice i can give anybody on anything and uh, with that being said, for Tex Johnson, myself, Professor Jeremy Vilmer, and Bobby Blaze, bye-bye, everybody.